I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, Danny. Hey, hey. It's been a little while. I know, and a lot's changed. A lot has happened since we last uh, found time to record. The biggest thing is that the world's greatest show, or should I say shittest show, ended. <laughs> it's a good show. Who knows anymore? The internet is livid. Yeah. Um, I, this is a reference to Game of Thrones. Yeah, yeah. Not like the European elections or something like that. So uh, I don't yeah. know if there was some effort to be satirical <laughs> in some way. Yeah, Game of Thrones is over. People were not happy with it. One of the features of Game of Thrones this season was uh, fan backlash, I would say, throughout. I felt like every yeah. time I watched an episode, I'd log on to Twitter and everyone would be talking about either how much they hate it or they'd be talking about how much other people hated it. Uh, and most of the way through, I was not really on board with this sense. And it was, wasn't really according with like the opinions of people who I spoke to in real life either. I felt like a lot of people I spoke to were like, yeah, I'm kind of enjoying it. It's still pretty good. And then I sort of checked Twitter and it would be getting dragged through the mud for its terrible writing. Having said that, I did think the last episode was not that great. What did you think of it? Uh, I didn't love it. But I think it kind of had already jumped the shark a little bit by this point. So you feel like you'd you'd adjusted to what the show had become. Yeah, exactly. So every, nothing surprising about it, apart from who ended up as king, which was quite an arbitrary choice. Well, it certainly felt arbitrary. I feel like that was probably on uh, George R. R. Martin's corkboard, you know, for yeah. a long time, and um, and no doubt how he'd imagined it playing out, it would have seemed, you know, inevitable when it was revealed but right. in this show it just felt like they just sort of sat around and were pointed at him and were like him my uh one remaining game of friends theory is that george R. R. Martin just basically refused to give them all the good juicy story ideas that he has left he was so annoyed they had to give the whole hold thing before he got to write it yeah like, i've been sitting on that for 15 years and i had to let them make it first and he's like i'm not giving you my really good juicy the real finale shit ending so they were like oh shit so that's all you know, do it on their own steam and it wasn't as good. That's a good opportunity for George R. R. Martin to prank them. Yeah. <laughs> Imagine him laughing to himself watching the finale episode. He was like, they believed me <laughs> when I said that guy was going to be the king. Mate, it was the ultimate Rick Roll. <laughs> the finale of Game of Thrones. Yeah. Something I find peculiar about it is that it's still probably like the best made thing uh, ever. Like yeah. The the production team are incredible. Absolutely and It's astonishing, such a sort of yeah. gulf between the quality of the writing and the quality of its execution. Like you couldn't direct it any better, and like, like there were generally like stunning moments throughout the last six episodes. Like the battle scenes were incredible; Absolutely. they're never going to be topped. I don't think it's going to like the new high watermark for yeah. a TV show production. The and auteur yeah. was the production team. Yeah, like if if it, if there was some new television show and it was like from the exact same people who did the special effects in Game of Thrones, yeah, I'd God. be like, I'm going to watch this. This is going to be brilliant. Yeah, and also kind of felt because. 
the uh, show's battle sequences were all building upon the previous ones and that they contained very sim- similar elements. It was like over the course of the show's eight seasons, they worked out how to do the dragons really well, worked out how to do zombies really well, worked out how to do pitched medieval sieges uh, very well. And then when you just bring them, you just bring all those elements together, you know, for, for extra levels of spectacle. Whereas the writing team, you know, I mean, how many writers did the show even have? Was it just those guys or like... I think the last stretch is just those two. It's just it? those two. You no, know, like there's probably more. Yeah. There's something on Twitter about they, there's no female writers after like season two or something. Really? <laughs> yeah. But I wonder like, I mean, it, it sort of does beg the question of why, what exactly did you, like, why did it feel like the writing was uh, sort of so hasty and shoddy, whereas everything else had been done with so meticulously and was so well planned. I mean, maybe it's because you can't plan all that stuff until the writing is there, but I don't know. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, it's, an, it's an oddity. So you weren't, you weren't too disappointed? Well, I don't know. I sort of generally didn't care anymore. I guess if your expectations weren't you know, that high, you can't Varys, be let down. My favorite character, Varys. Yeah. I once went on a date with Varys' uh, goddaughter or possibly niece. About four years ago. True story. I just want to throw that in there. <laughs> is that why Varys is your favorite character? Well, she never. She, his, his goddaughter ghosted me. So. <laughs> I was like, I can't believe Varys' goddaughter has done this to me. The spider has done this to me. Did you think of this every time you saw him on screen? Yeah. The brutal ghosting you see to the hands of his possibly goddaughter, possibly niece. So either related to him or not. Yeah. But some sort of some connection. Uh, did that come up in on the date? She was like, yeah. "Oh, you know, whatever his name is, Conleth uh, Hill. Hill, yeah, uh, like... yeah." I can't think one came up. I think it's because he's in whatever works as Woody Allen movie. Oh, okay. I don't know why that came up. Classic <laughs> date dating uh, <laughs> subject to bring up. <laughs> this is four years ago, maybe possibly five. So he wasn't so... persona non grata back then. Yeah. And obviously, you were talking about his most famous beloved film, Whatever, <laughs> whatever Works. Whatever Works. It's like, have you seen Whatever Works? Like, <laughs> Start of the day, you're sitting down, just getting a drink. It's like, have you seen this movie, Whatever Works, with Larry David, you know? And... Uh, this fantastic actor, Conor Phil. It's <laughs> <laughs> related to him. I would like to go on a second date with them, but it didn't work. No. Yeah. Should have talked about a different movie, mate. Yeah. You fucked it by bringing up that film. Oh, well. Anyway, uh, sorry, I was just lost thinking what what might have been. Uh, why am I here? What is this about? Why are we recording each other? I'm confused. Let me tell you, this podcast is all about Danny Moran, a former child star, who's being interviewed by Sky Daily. And rather bluntly, Sky asks how Danny so quickly went from one of America's sweethearts to a name that makes children scream in terror. Uh, Danny, completely in silhouette, begins his story. Danny is shown accepting an endorsement contract from a slimy mega corporation called EES, everything except shoes, to promote Zygrot 24, a toxic fertilizer in South America. Although hesitant at first, the greedy, self-centered Moran caves in after their sleazy CEO offers him $5 million. Danny travels immediately to the South American town of Santa Flan with his buddy Sam. During their flight, that's me by the way, during their flight, the duo have a run-in with Danny's 12-year-old number one fan, Stewie Gluck. Stewie begs Danny not to promote Zygrot 24, only to accidentally fall out of the plane. (laughs) The end of Stewie Gluck. Once Danny and Sam arrive in Santa Flan, they cross paths with an angry group protesting Zygrot 24, 
and Danny. In the group is environmentalist Julie, who Danny is instantly smitten with. The two con Julie into thinking they're also environmentalists, Danny posing as a highly injured accident victim, his face covered in bandages, and she agrees to join them on a trip to another protest. However, she soon finds out their true identities, and the three are stuck with each other for the rest of the drive. They decide to take a detour to see Freakland, a local freak show, only to wind up in the clutches of demented proprietor and mad scientist Elijah C. Scuggs and his henchman Toad. Utilizing his testy freaks machine, he merges Julie and Sam into a single body and turns Danny into a hideous green mutation. As Elijah has run out of his eye grot, only half of Danny's body is mutated. This is what I would be saying. This was a adaptation of the 1993 comedy film Freaked. Instead, it's just a podcast in which we talk about and review films. I'm Sam Foster, and joining me is Danny Moran, former child star turned freak. (laughs) (laughs) My freak. freak That's me, Sam. You wanted to be the very best, like no one ever was. To watch films was your real test. To review them was your cause. Which is why you'll be telling me all about Detective Pikachu, an actual film that actually exists. Yeah. About a cute little rabbit thing that can electrocute people, which has the voice of Ryan Reynolds. You know, they say Hollywood is running out of ideas, but on the basis of this. And he wears a little deerstalker hat. He wears a little deerstalker hat. Sorry. Because he's a detective. Yeah, of course. Thanks for correcting me. Uh, Then I will be reviewing Birds of Passage, which is not, as I was led to believe, a spin-off of my favorite TV show, Birds of a Feather. First off... (laughs) It's not about two best friends. It's about how the uh, drug trade decimated a culture in Colombia. Secondly, it's not a half-hour sitcom. It's a two-hour epic film. And finally, and most egregiously, Pauline Quirk does not feature at all. No Quirk. Pretty annoyed about that. Then Sam, you'll be telling me about why I should see John Wick Chapter 3, Parabellum, in which the internet's boyfriend, Keanu Reeves, befriends animals, uh, possibly avenges them, murders some people, rides horses, meets dogs... <laughs> There's a guy who keeps pigeons. It's like that sketch Mark Wahlberg talks to animals, <laughs> but an action film starring Keanu Reeves. Uh, yeah. Plus, we discuss the surprising news that Chris Rock is going to reboot the Saw franchise. Wonder how many billions the new Chris Van Nolan movie will cost and make, and reappraise unappreciated gem Charlie's Angels Full Throttle. All of which should leave me just enough time to tell you about my idea for a biopic about a beloved gay musical icon after the phenomenal success of Bohemian Rhapsody last year the phenomenal success of Rocket Man right now, and the recently announced Boy George movie that's going to come out in a couple of years' time, I figured I've got to go on the bandwagon. Who's left? Only one name, Will Young. The film will be called Evergreen, obviously, based on his biggest-selling hit, Evergreen. Obviously. Which is also still the UK's fastest-selling single. That's interesting. And will feature all his hits and the comic moments from his life, uh, starting when he won Pop Idol, beating Gareth Gates. Then, of course, most of the film will be about him acting in the film Mrs. Henderson Presents. And it will conclude with him releasing the album Lexicon, which is out on June 19th this year. <laughs> <laughs> right. I, because by the time you make, you're making the film, you know, it'll be out. Yeah. So you'll be able to include that in the movie. Yeah, I don't want to take the film right up to the present day, but like two years. It's called, before... it's called Lexicon. Yeah, that's the a, that's a new it's album. pretty exciting sounding name. It's, just like, it's like calling your album Vocabulary. <laughs> pretty cool there better be a lot of words in it otherwise yeah. I hope he's like really got a lot of dense lyrics with interesting maybe the music. working title was limited lexicon and <laughs> uh, he only uses five words yeah I'm gonna take this moment I'm gonna make it last forever that sounds like a really good idea I like that you bookended your little spiel there with song lyrics thank you 
beautiful. It rhymes, it's like poetry. <laughs> We got a lovely message from our friend Callum Russell. He writes, Dear Film Chat slash Raised by Milfs. That was a mooted uh, name for the podcast at some point. Uh, following up from the I Know What You Did Last Summer Loving Grease prequel news, I thought I'd write in and let you know I was re-watching Charlie's Angels Full Throttle the other night, which I highly recommend everyone does. It's solid gold cinema. And I noticed that Cameron Diaz and her boyfriend, played by Luke Wilson, go to his high school reunion at none other than Rydell High, the same high school from Greece. Diaz then gets tangled up in a load of balloons, classic Diaz, and has a solo dance number with a group of randomly appearing professional dancers. There are several other dance pieces in the two Charlie's Angels movies, both are set in California, and both films feature quite a lot of leather. So is this finally the big franchise shared universe crossover we've all been waiting decades for? Probably not, but it's a fun piece of trivia. Uh, on a more serious note, I also really enjoyed The Sisters Brothers. Having expected it to be more of a silly comedy based on the trailer and title, I was surprised to find it quite touching and enjoyed the gentle plot meanderings. I thought the sequences, once the four main cast members unite, were beautifully acted and structured. And I really liked that one scene where Phoenix does a bit of narrative exposition while talking directly to the camera and rolling a cigarette. It felt a little like it was cut in later, and I think in a lesser film it would feel more jarring, but Phoenix's performance and the direction in general made it feel like a natural part of the storytelling. So that's an endorsement of your take on Sisters Brothers because yes. you also gave that a positive review. And uh, what do you make of the connections between Charlie's Angels and Greece? Well, I think we definitely have to rewatch Charlie's Angels too, which I remember is a very strange and like hilarious movie. It's an absolutely hilarious film. I, I it's one of those. I don't have I don't have like a very good memory for like where I was when I saw a film. You know, I think this is more your uh, area. You always you always can recall these things. <laughs> But I do distinctly remember seeing Charlie's Angels Full Throttle, and that came out in the cinema. I was with Nick Long in Kingston, <laughs> and we were just wondering about... It was one of those things where you just like, what should we do this afternoon? Let's just go to the movies, and it just happens. It just happened to be on. And I think it just made such an impression of me that I've never quite, never quite forgotten it. The bit I remember most about it is like the villain is like some Irish guy. And there's a bit of like there's an explosion. And he kind of walks through the flames, like like the Terminator, <laughs> and like delivers some like evil Morlock. But at the end, like walks back and goes back into goes the back flames. Into the flames. <laughs> and also, there's a bit of like Demi Moore, like literally flies. She like jumps off like a building, but she's got like such a billowing coat. She just, just flies, flies away, glides down. <laughs> yeah, it's good. I remember there being this uh, really fun sequence where they fight a bunch of guys in in like inside a ship. And they uh, they end up escaping the inside of the ship. There's some kind of like pulley system with like crates and stuff. And they like release some rope that's weighted at one end. And they end up getting like flung upwards, like into the deck of the ship from below. Right. They burst through it, fly into the air. And then like in midair, they sort of grab bits of splintered wood, uh, put them under their feet like skateboards. 
land on the the mooring ropes attaching to the ship to the dock and then like slides down the ropes and then just jump off sick man <laughs> that's, so sick. Uh, that's a cool that is a cool stunt and that was all done for real as well so what, <laughs> it's one it's one take real stunt performed by the actors one take, style one take yeah it's a miracle they survived that um as for the grease connection you know they were muting that men in black 22 jump street crossover right yeah. doesn't seem any less random to me to uh, combine Charlie's Angels and the Grease films. I think they should do it. Yeah, I mean, Grease is a little uh, retrograde in its sexual politics, you could argue. Yeah. In that, like, she sort of basically uh, becomes the babe. I don't know, like, because they both try and sort of, like, become each other, right? And then they sort of meet, meet a compromise at the end, which is, like, Danny's look. Yeah. <laughs> like, the compromise is, like, you just have to change and yeah. I'll stay the same. Whereas Charlie's Angels is a, f- a feminist masterpiece. Well, it's a very feminist film because... So what if the pink ladies, you know, they grew up, they were like, got rid of the T-Birds, we don't need them. They became kick-ass spies. Yeah. I could see it. I think... <laughs> <laughs> Why not? <laughs> Sounds good. I think it would make a bundle at the box office. A solid bundle. Make a, make a full bundle. Superhero films announced Casting rumours leaking out M. Night Shyamalan's film is hated Paul Thomas Anderson's is fated Meryl Streep's Oscar tipped Matt Damon's in a viral vid Michael Bay's made a mint That's the news that's fit to print So Christopher Nolan has finished polishing his pocket watches and counting his money <laughs> and checking all his big cameras to make sure yeah. the film's big enough Making uh, loose leaf tea the right way <laughs> Loose leaf tea the right way <laughs> Uh, <laughs> he's finished returning all that sand that he uh that he brought onto the set of dunkirk uh, absolutely and he's started work on a new film it's gonna be called tenet 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 <laughs> tenet yeah and we've got an official sort of mini synopsis which is it's an action adventure epic evolving from the world of international espionage that's all we know but we do know who's going to be in it so the cast consists of aaron taylor johnson Kick-Ass, Quicksilver, that guy from Nocturnal Animals, Kenneth Branagh, Sir Brenneth Canar, Clements Posey, Dimple Capadia, don't, that's a cool name, don't know who that is, but Dimple's a fucking badass first name, Michael Caine, apparently there's a role for an old man, Michael Caine's going to be that, and um, <laughs> Robert Patterson, he's hot as shit right now, he's going to be in it, and leading the cast is John David Washington, and you're probably thinking that's quite a male, male cast, don't worry, there's one woman, Elizabeth Debecky. Yeah, well, there was more women in that list. Clements Posey and I think Dimple oh, Capadia. I just instantly forgot. <laughs> yeah. But and yeah, also, Elizabeth Debet- Debetsky. Yeah. I think like her son might be pronounced like Debetsky or something. Yes. Uh, Elizabeth Debecky. She's Australian, so. Yeah, I didn't know. Elizabeth Debecky. So just judging from that extremely vague description, it sounds like it just reminds me of Inception a little bit. They're all going to be wearing cool International suits. espionage. They'll probably all be wearing suits, just like the director himself. And shooting people like he wishes he could do. He's just, you know, he constantly makes his version of a Bond movie, right? It's going to be... It's going to be another Bond movie. Except this time it won't be set in the architecture of the mind. Yeah. I mean, I remember when uh, the cryptic one-line synopsis for Inception came out and it was basically that. It's like a heist thriller set in the architecture of the mind. I was like, okay, what's that about? And this is even more... This is just totally generic. It's just like, yeah. it's about spies and there's people shoot each other. So it'll probably just be like a, another... Like the Bond franchise will once again uh, only produce good films in terms of its inspirations rather than in terms of the actual franchise. Yeah, true. The real question is, uh, is Clemence Posey and Elizabeth Debicki's characters, are they dead before the start of the film or how quickly will they die in the film? <laughs> how evil will they turn out to be? Yeah. What yeah. Do you reckon? 
Yeah, I mean, he's a man who's shown no ability to overcome his own flaws uh, over the course <laughs> of his career. He's really doubled down on all of his, like, you know, various foibles and problems. So, yeah, one assumes that it won't be a particularly great movie for the women. I've got a theory about his lack of good female characters in his movies. Mm-hmm. Do you ever seen that Peter Serafinowicz sketch where the couple who never argue is Peter Serafinowicz and his wife and they're like... She annoys him and he just goes to the window and just screams into the night. (laughs) (laughs) But like, he's like really nice to her in person. Yeah, that rings a bell. Uh, Anything planned for the weekend? Oh yeah, I've got a poker game with some old school friends on Saturday night. No, 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 we've got tickets for the theatre, I told you last week. (laughs) Oh yeah, I forgot. Oh well, I'll just cancel my friends. It's fine. Uh, Do you mind if I open a window? Oh sure, I'll do it. No, 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 I've got it. The theatre's shit! I hate the theatre almost as much as I hate you! You might as well go ahead and castrate me, you evil cow! Nice bit of fresh air. I reckon it's like that because his wife, uh, Emma something. Thomas? Emma Thomas is the producer of his movies. Mm. So I reckon they have a little argument. And, you know, she throws away one of his antique pocket watches by mistake. <laughs> it's like, oh, that's that's fine, darling. And then you hear him let the door, like, slam a bit. And then the sound of typing. And it's like, interior room, a dead woman lies on the floor. A man weeps over it. Yeah. You know, he just, they have the perfect marriage because he just exercises all his uh, demons in his fictional characters. Mm. His, like, uh, violent misogynist fantasies that just simply turned into uh, sprawling IMAX epics. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, but that's probably a... healthy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> a perfect relationship. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, I can't help but be kind of excited for it. He's basically like someone who in a previous era would be, like, building massive railway bridges or something like that. Or, like... It's like, isn't Bob Kingdom Brunner? Yeah, or, or, you know, he'd be... Um, uh, constructing giant machines of war or you know something like that but instead it's he's just building big sets and shooting um silly films on them but as always he's always got some you know mad new angle or something you know exciting yeah, to watch so exciting yeah why not why not it's no one's world we just live in it <laughs> you know he, he he always uh strikes up a contract that means he gets 100 percent of the gross receipts from his movies so he'll be spending his own billions building like he's he's his movie sets are like the uh the synecdoche new york uh sort of play you know where he he ends up reconstructing new york itself i'm sure no one's doing something like that right now yeah probably just to entertain us all (laughs) (laughs) and that's why we give thanks to him we're just like you know it's just we could just go there and film he's like no 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 no, build it (laughs) build it build it build it it'll be for a sequence that's five seconds long We can just turn the camera upside down. No. <laughs> the set must be upside down. Kill him. Kill him now. I shouldn't. Do it. All right. Any more interesting news? Chris Rock, the comedian. He also made that film uh about his like basically about his own life top five top five is he's like... made a bunch of movies but that's oh has he made more movies than that oh, he made like black hair and uh, he made uh good hair a documentary sorry good hair there's one like i think i love my wife or something i don't know i feel like he's not that proud of his directoral efforts apart from top five well pretty good he's hoping to change that by taking on a familiar franchise 
this doesn't sound like a sort of necessary thing that the cinematic landscape requires, but Chris Rock is doing it. A remake of Saw. Um, Rock is planning a fresh batch of Saw films because that's how the um, cinema works now. You can't just make one film. It's no, like, no, no, uh, no. you know, oh, yeah, I've been signed on to direct seven films and we'll just hope that they're all hugely <laughs> successful. The first of which is slated for an October 2020 release. Rock said, I've been a fan of Saw since I saw the first film in 2004. Makes sense. I, I, I was a fan <laughs> when I when I watched the film. Um, I'm excited by the opportunity to take this to a really intense and twisted new place. Joe Drake, the chairman of Lionsgate, sounds particularly enthused about the direction Rock has in mind. According to Joe Drake, when Chris Rock came to us and described in chilling detail his fantastic vision that reimagines and spins off the world of the notorious Jigsaw Killer, we were all in. Chris conceived this idea and it will be completely reverential to the legacy of the material while reinvigorating the brand with his wit, creative vision, and passion for this classic horror franchise. (laughs) (laughs) Rock saw film. He's not directing it, though. No. He's just the the guru, perhaps the writer, the creative mind behind this. It will be directed by Darren Lynn Bowsman, the director of Saws 2 through 4. And, yeah. (laughs) So, Saw has had how many installments? Like, seven? Seven? Maybe. Right. But the central premise of... (laughs) Remains the same. (laughs) Some people get trapped in a puzzle. It's like the crystal maze. Yeah. But you have to, like... You know, cut off your own dick and eat it <laughs> to find the key, or stuff like that. Yeah. And now we get to it's just gonna we'll start afresh from the beginning, but with a chilling new vision by Chris Rock for some reason. But like, I mean, I'm by the voice saying... of the mosquito from <laughs> <laughs> from uh, ants. B movie. Oh shit! <laughs> sorry, he's the mosquito B movie. Sorry. Uh, how can you forget? <laughs> sorry, they're blending together. I was already a blood sucking parasite, and then he ends up as a lawyer. He ends up as a lawyer. Yeah. One of, one of the only jokes <laughs> in that film. Yeah, it is kind of funny in that it's such a concept-driven franchise. It's like, we're going to reboot it. It's like, you might as well just make another one, right? They're all different casts of characters. There's some, like, ties between them. Yeah, maybe the mythology was getting too complicated after right. seven movies, and they were like, we need to start afresh. I mean, what Why is... not just make a different film? I don't, well, it has to be branded sword to get the punters in, I guess. Yeah. I don't know. I, top five, I, I didn't watch that, and I was like, this guy should really write a Saw movie. So... Here's what I know about Chris Rock. I know that that um, uh, he did that joke about how um, he thinks that everybody should have guns, but only he should have bullets. <laughs> that's pretty good. That was a pretty good joke. I saw him in an episode of I mean, Louie. That's, that's quite sore-like. Yeah, they've all got guns. <laughs> like, the bullets are like inside a baby or something. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's true. I'm sure that joke will make its way into his new Saw film. Uh, he was in an episode of Louie that I remember watching. Kind of seemed like a charming guy in that. Um, I can't say that uh, other than this one guns bit that I've ever seen anything from him that suggests that he would, you know, be a horror maestro. Hey, would you say the same thing about Jordan Peele four years ago? That is a great point. And now he is the horror king de jour. That's the title people use. <laughs> <laughs> um, that is a really good point. Yeah, he's just like, I don't know, I'm... He's a very smart guy. Comedy and horror, they're both about timing, aren't they? About timing. So you can make people laugh, you can make them scream. And his, you know, his stand-up's very philosophical. Mm, reflective. Reflective. So, you know, just on the basis that he is a smart, funny man, <laughs> he probably could write a good script. So... A lot of people think that, you know. <laughs> like, they're just like, I'm successful in this part of life, so why not just do something else, you know? And, and why not? 
Maybe maybe Chris Rock's Saw film will be a biting social commentary in the same way that Get Out was. He'll f- he'll find some some like gem in the the Saw franchise that you know a bit the way that, like the Purge movies supposedly became increasingly political. I haven't yeah. actually seen any of them, but I heard that you know it started off as this shocky premise, but by like the Purge four, it's yeah. like some kind of actually quite clever um, social allegory. Uh, maybe he'll have discovered something within the saw material that will make it, you know, equally um, kind of contemporary and uh, intriguing piece of work. He's hoping. He's hoping. Yeah. Can't the wait. Jigsaw Killer's got a like a MAGA hat now. The Jigsaw Killer's the president. <laughs> Pres is called Saw President Jigsaw. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Everyone's at, when he stop when he runs initially like no one's gonna over this guy. He's outrageous. <laughs> He murdered people in a library. He's got a ridiculous, ridiculous mask and he wheels about on his little tricycle. Yeah. There's, there's no way swing voters are going to get... People masks, the yeah. rallies get bigger and bigger. Yeah. When he's like, lock him up, he's like, lock him up, but like, in a really complicated <laughs> With like, you know, there's broken glass on the floor and like the keys uh, inside your brain and here's a toothpick and you've got four minutes or whatever. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, yeah. That's what, that's what they think Hillary Clinton uh, deserves. Yeah. That yeah. sounds good. All right, now we found out what it's going to be, and now we can be really excited. It's going to be great. It's going to be good. Looks like Sam's got a film to review. He's just getting ready now. Hey, Sam, here's a few tips for you that I hope are going to help you out. you got to come prepared. Try not to rush. Speak directly into the mic. Um, Don't sort of use filler words too much and try to avoid talking total shite. Okay, start reviewing now. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Okay, Detective Pikachu. One of those uh, elevator pitches that you just, once you hear it, you just can't imagine just not making it. Just gotta make it. You can't imagine not making it. So this is a film uh, all about a young man called Tim Goodman, played by Justice Smith. He is a 21-year-old insurance salesman who has given up on Pokemon training following the death of his mother in the absence of his father, Harry. And he gets a note summoning to Rhyme City, where his father has disappeared. Rhyme City is a, a unique city in whatever country this movie is set in, where Pokemon live alongside humans like most in most other places they live in the wilderness and then they're taken into different environments to like fight each other in what is i assume a horribly unethical practice and in rhyme city they just they're in the streets they're directing the traffic they're doing the normal their normal stuff and when he goes to rhyme city he meets uh, detective pikachu voiced by ryan reynolds most pokemon just make noises or say their own names detective pikachu speaks with the voice of ryan reynolds only Justice Smith can understand him, so they have this kind of special bond. And then they—he's uh, also like a smart Pikachu, and he wears like a deerstalker hat because he's a detective as well, solves crimes. And uh, they end up trying to solve the mystery of Tim's disappearing father. Here's a clip. So, Pikachu? Oh, jeez. Hey, little guy. How did you get in here? I know you can't understand me. But put down the stapler, or I will electrocute you. 
Did you just talk? Whoa. Did you just understand me? Wait, 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 wait. That is heavy eye contact right there. You heard me. No, no, yes, no. you did. Oh, stop my God. Stop. This is amazing. You can understand me. Stop. I've been so lonely. So I think this is the, the most embarrassed I've ever been to say the title of a film when I was buying a ticket for it. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, um, I just wanted to go see a film after work. I was just in that mood, you know, it'd been a long day. I was just like, I just want to go to cinema. I want to switch off cinema. my brain and just watch something. But the only thing that was really on at a convenient time was Detective Pikachu. And I said it so quietly, the guy had to ask me again, what? <laughs> it's like, what? And I was like, yeah. <laughs> Uh, Detective Pikachu, please. One tickets to Detective Pikachu, which I'm seeing by myself. Yes, I know. Um, it's based on a video game. And as a as a sort of idea, it makes more sense as a video game, I think, in a way. Just because being a detective, you know, it's, it's like Mario Kart, isn't it? It's sure. like familiar characters, but why not make them all race? And it's like familiar characters, but why not make them like solve clues? You know, if you're the protagonist, why, why not be a Pikachu in a detective game? I assume that's what it's like. I don't know how faithful this is to the game because I have not played it. But, you know, as a as a film uh, concept, it seems pretty arbitrary. Um, in terms of like the film's quality, I guess it's fine. <laughs> it's like a sort of, it's very like child aimed, I would say. Right. As you might imagine. Uh, <laughs> there's there's probably like uh, like less to get out of this for, for a grown up than from some like uh, more subtly made and intelligent uh, family movies. But for what it is, I guess it's like perfectly serviceable. I think one of my, my misgivings about the film is that a lot of the uh, setup and plot seem to me to be stolen from the film Zootropolis. It's got a very similar kind of central plot device twist and even setting because the world of rhyme city which like you know is set up in such a way that like you know animals have urban existences yeah is rather reminiscent of zootropolis i think Uh, so i found that somewhat derivative but there was a certain enjoyment to be had from uh you know watching all the little critters like (laughs) you know go around and do things and also i i like I haven't really interacted properly with the Pokemon universe since I was a child and I watched the cartoon series. So it was, you know, it was like, oh yeah, I can kind of remember that little guy. There's the one that's a boxer and the one that's a mime for some reason. There's like an extended sequence where they're like torturing a mime. It's very odd. Right. Mr. Mime. I also think like the movie made quite a smart decision in uh, not dramatizing the uh, battles, sort of the normal Pokemon thing where they catch these things in the wilderness and then force them to fight each other because that just seems like a completely unethical practice especially if you are emotionally investing in one of them as a kind of creature with human-like intelligence. Yeah. It just makes it seem even less appropriate to be, uh, you know, imprisoning them in little balls and then uh, forcing them to, like, do battle. Yeah, it's a bit messed up. It's fucked up, man. <laughs> uh, Bill Nye's in it, didn't they, that? Wow, okay. He's like, uh, he's like the sort of uh, mastermind of the city. He sort cool, of decided, cool. he's the visionary who decided that uh, Pokemon should live alongside human beings. And uh, Bill Nye had the manner that I did watching the film of like slight shame, I think. You know, he's, he's occasionally crops up in these uh, blockbuster movies. Like, you know, he was in the Underworld franchise as a vampire or something. And Isn't it always G-Force? looks... Isn't in... <laughs> what the... really smart gerbils. Smart gerbils, yeah. And I always feel like he is has a sort of weary element of sort of self-mockery to yeah. his performances, which is very much uh, present in this film as well. So, you know, he was quite an entertaining screen presence. Uh, but overall, I would say it was, you know, relatively undercooked, uh, but, it, uh, you know, it did distract me sure. for, for the full running length of the film. 
but no who framed roger rabbit that's the high watermark of you know animated creatures interacting with uh humans in a detective story in a detective story that's true yeah yeah you'd think that they would have drawn more on who framed roger rabbit no i think yeah, I think Who Framed Roger Rabbit is uh, definitely a superior <laughs> film. <laughs> if, you, if you just said, actually, no, it is, it is better. This is <laughs> much D- better. Detective Pikachu is much better. Also, uh, the Pikachu doesn't solve enough clues, you know. Not much of a detective. Shouldn't like, he be more like Sherlock like, Holmes? Uh, Harrison Ford and Blade Runner don't do any fucking detecting. Like, I think, you know, there's nothing funny to me about a Pikachu that sounds like Ryan Reynolds. I think a Pikachu who sounds like um, Rathbone, what's he called? Basil, Basil Rathbone. Rathbone. I think that would have been funnier, wouldn't it? Yeah. <laughs> like a ludicrously posh British voice. Yeah, like an incredibly posh Brit. I mean, he's I know, got... I'm Pikachu. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think that, I just think that would have been much funnier. Yeah. And like, uh, Ryan Reynolds clearly does quite a lot of ad-libbing as well in the script. And I don't know why Ryan Reynolds is always being allowed to ad-lib as much as he wants, as though he has the wit of someone who's a professional comedian, when he doesn't quite... I mean, he's quite funny, but he's not quite funny enough, I yeah. think. Um, so yeah I'd say that was a black mark against the film <laughs> <laughs> they should have cast a posh bread as Detective Pikachu and he should have solved a lot more clues I think it should have been much more like Sherlock Holmes Pikachu basically leaned into that aspect of it fair enough some uh, good studio notes yeah those are my those are my notes for maybe Detective a change voice for the sequel mm-hmm. Detective Pikachu 2 he's uh, well. peeking at you <laughs> <laughs> electric Pikachu <laughs> Excellent. All right. That's my review of Detective Pikachu. Solid endorsement. Go see it. Send me long essays about your opinions about the film. I want to know about it. Now let's hear about a, a real film. And now for Danny to review a film he recently saw. Was it staggeringly brilliant? Was it ask-cunchingly poor? How did Danny form a judgment? We're about to hear his thoughts. If he does a rubbish job, then Sam will tell him off. When I went to see this film... I loudly proclaimed the film I was seeing because I was so proud of seeing a grown-up film. <laughs> <laughs> Birds of Passage, please! Actually, I saw Love and Full Festival. That's a lie. Just, that was just a funny joke I made just to shame you further. So this so this is directed by Ciro Guerra and uh, Christina Gallego and written by Christina Gallego and Catherine Paws. Ciro Guerra is the director of Embrace of the Serpent, which is an amazing film from a few years back. So I was very excited to see this one. And the plot is that Rafayette, played by newcomer Jose Acosta, is part of a Wayu Colombian tribe in the late 60s. And and early on in the movie, there's a sort of uh, courting ceremony where young men try and impress prospective wives. And he claps his eyes on Zayda, played by Natalie Rees. And he is determined to marry her, but he comes from an impoverished background and the family is not keen on him marrying her. So her imperious... Uh, mother played by Carmina Martinez to sort of scare him off insists that he must have a dowry of a ludicrous sum he can never possibly raise but Raphael is a you know enterprising young chap and realizes there's money to be made in the drug trade and the film is like a sort of crime saga that charts the family's history as the Colombian drug trade basically sort of decimates the culture I would play a clip but uh, I can't speak Colombian? Can you? No. <laughs> <laughs> Is it, do they speak so Portuguese? That's probably... Yeah, I was like, Colombian, that's not Is a language. Is that a language? Yeah. I think they speak Portuguese. Um, 
So my expectations were super high going into this because I loved Embrace of the Serpent so much. It was a totally kind of transcendent cinematic experience. So this better be the best one I've ever seen in my life. And I was a little uh, let down by it because I thought it'd be like this interesting uh, gangster movie, which isn't American because the gangster genre is such a staple of American cinema. To see it from a perspective of a different culture would be really interesting. But it was disappointing how much it kind of fits the mold and cliches. It just felt very American. Mm. Just the setting was different. And then I thought that's perhaps not a valid criticism because uh, to briefly do my film 101 about gangster movies, the reason it's considered such an American genre is because it's like the dark mirror reflection of the immigrant story. Like if you just have, you know, work hard, you can start off at the bottom and get to the top. But, and gangsters do that, but they do that by murdering and robbing and being bad men. Yes. I recall I this in some of the films that I've seen. <laughs> <laughs> but then it occurred to me that that's not, that's just the story of capitalism. It's not necessarily an intrinsically American thing. It just, uh, America is just the clearest example of that. And so many American movies have that mold. You know, the rise and fall is just the boom and bust of the market. Right. So it makes sense that any movie about capitalism, no matter what culture it's from, would follow that trajectory. But having said that, <laughs> it still fulfills a lot of like uh, very tired cliches. Chief among them, the kind of characters that are in the movie, it feels like you're either Michael Corleone or Sonny. You're either the cool, calculating, ruthless operator. Or, or the, you're the guy's nuts. The girl, like, <laughs> or the hothead. And, like, there are certain characters in this movie where their fates are very unsurprising. You know, it's like, oh, loco party man. <laughs> Isn't going to make it act two, I don't think. Yeah. So the beats it follows are very familiar. What I did like about it is I think the performances are universally brilliant. Uh, this Jose Acosta guy is like an unknown. And based on this and Embrace of the Serpent, the director is very good at finding guys with incredible amount of presence. Uh, he doesn't say a lot, you know, because he's too busy being cold and calculating. Mm. But you just stick a camera on this guy and I'm like, this guy is chilling. Uh, and I thought his, you know, sort of trajectory from impoverished guy to sort of like Colombian Scarface was really well done. And there is a certain amount of mileage in the sort of familiar story in an unfamiliar location. Uh, it's just a very visually striking movie. And it makes the whole, the whole capitalism is bad point just even more blunt because they literally start off living in huts and by the end they're in mansions. So just the sort of a rags to riches thing is like even more starkly drawn and as much as i'm totally on board of the message of capitalism bads i think a problem with these kinds of stories is that it has a slightly like what have we become message to it and it just means that the previous way of life isn't criticized at all or analyzed and so uh, they kind of fall away from their sort of spiritual uh you know authentic existence right right yeah yeah that is automatically assumed to be perfect and great. And they've, you know, what have they become? But the start of the movie, they are basically selling their daughter. So, and I don't want to go into this whole thing like, hey, say you want about capitalism, but it doesn't mean, you know, it's all bad. <laughs> but, you know, it doesn't have... Uh... Well, like, it's a natural human impulse to want to improve your material conditions. Exactly. Yeah. And it just, like, it doesn't have a critical eye to the start of the film. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I guess the the reason that the uh, gangster story has the power that it does in America is because that is such a strong um, imperative in American culture to succeed and become wealthy. Yeah. So, you know, that it's commentary on that. And uh, if it's, I don't know exactly what Colombian society is like, but 
Well, the you point know, the, the, yeah, the point of the movie is that like basically the the culture is decimated. It's similar to embracing the serpent, embracing the serpent, where the, the rubber trade destroyed this indigenous population. Yeah, and it's even more so because they sort of do it to themselves. I right, guess right. is the sort of angle on this movie. But I just mean in the case of like, if it's about this culture being destroyed, it doesn't really in- investigate the culture at all. It's just something that gets lost. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. And you just assume it was good, <laughs> like, or like without flaws. <laughs> Because, you know, what it ends up as is so bad doesn't mean what it was before was so good. Yeah, I think that that's a that's often a problem with, um, well, I don't know. I, it's a problem. I'm just going by what you're saying because yeah, yeah. I haven't seen this movie. But I think it's like a difficulty in representing indigenous cultures coming into contact, you know, with like, um, you know, capitalist, industrialized uh, kind of way of living. Um, that it's sort of essentializing like there's some sort of purity like yeah, way exactly of life that. like the nature your contact with nature and stuff um, and I think like something that I was uh, uh, reading about last term and I was doing one of my modules so my MA was like the difficulty that actual indigenous cultures have now um, in simultaneously having to live up to this like view of them as being uh, in touch with their ancestral history and living this like unspoiled uh, existence when you know they've like in lots of places they have been living with like colonizing white people who built massive cities for like you know hundreds of years or you know um so so they can't really like uh, match that view and like uh, yeah and the actual particularities of what it means to live as an indigenous person you know in that particular era then ends up getting lost because it's just seen as this like binary where they're sort of you know you have the pure indigenous life on one hand and then the kind of like impure you know sell out capitalist life on the other hand yeah and that like what's best for the actual person in that circumstance is uh, is lost a bit yeah i felt there was an opportunity there for a bit more development which wasn't quite that but having said that like is a supremely well-made film i find it hard like as a like straightforward like gangster film it's familiar but very well executed so i would recommend it cool so get thee to your nearest art house cinema not picture house they don't pay their staff a living wage <laughs> capitalism bad that's what i learned from this movie when Graf heard something that changed his life what he listened to when John Cusack made a mixtape for his future wife, what did she listen to? And when Michael Madsen cut a guy's ear off, what was he dancing to? And when Tim Robbins showed Shawshank that he had enough, which record did he choose? Yeah, 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 yeah. Alright, now back to silliness which is all I do now, you know. I just, I don't have the brain uh, power to... Um, I do, I do. <laughs> a lot of brain power. Uh, To digest real films, so I had to see these stuff. I went to see John Wick, colon, chapter three, M-dash, Parabellum. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know it's a good movie if it's got, like, multiple nested layers of title. Sure. Um, this is obviously the third film, the John Wick franchise, the city of neo-noir, uh, sort of purpley blue films about Keanu Reeves in a suit, like shooting a bunch of people and wrestling them and uh, killing them in all sorts of highly efficient ways. Very, uh, stunt real life focused films rather than CGI soaked action movies. Um, in the latest installment, which is directed by Chad Stahelski. Um, who has directed the last two films by himself and the first one was directed by him and uh, David Leach. John, it takes up directly after the end of John Wick 2. Have you seen John Wick Chapter 2? No. 
Have you seen John Wick 1? Uh, yeah. Well, you're familiar with the kind of world of John Wick. Sure, Everyone's like a... a fucking hitman in this world. They never seem to like get any contracts to do any actual hits, but they just, they're all just killing each other, <laughs> it, it would appear. And uh, so the end of John Wick Chapter 2, John Wick ends up being a sort of persona non grata in the, uh, the, the hitman universe. Excommunicated from he, the he is, hitman. He's excommunicado, as they put it in the film. Oh, wow, okay. Um, yeah, he's excommunicated. Uh, there's all some sort of like there's a little like catholic imagery in these films for some reason sure. i think it's just because it he's cool i don't know he's got a lot of guilt and stuff right he's very guilty <laughs> yeah i guess so uh so it takes up like immediately and like every hitman is descending on john wick and it's sort of uh which also happens in the previous film but more of that happens in this film and it kind of follows him as he's trying to like escape the stuff like coming crashing down on him and sort of resolve all these issues and it's basically like an ongoing bloodbath tumbling out of the actions of the first film when he sort of returned to the game after the death of his dog and stealing of his car um these films are a bit like they remind me a bit of the the, the mission impossible franchise at the moment you know that like um christopher mcquarrie talks about how like when they make when he's making a new mission impossible film now they just sit down and they're like what sort of stunts would we like to do and then they kind of construct a plot around them yeah and then the john wick movies are very much the same kind of a thing they've obviously sat down and like been like what do we want to do i think like we need a sequence with dogs killing people uh and i'd like because obviously Keanu reeves interacts well with animals this is very yeah. established from the first film yeah so we want we want him to have loads of like killer dogs we want there to be a scene where he rides a horse through manhattan uh what was that movie that uh that there's that like um the samurai swords on the motorbikes oh the villainess the villainess you know someone watched that movie and was like let's just do that in john wick so that happens in this film and, th- and there's all of these you know different things that they wanted to do and the the connecting tissue is you know just totally thin and it, it's it's basically people in suits i guess a bit like mission impossible sure. all, the, all the middle scenes of mission impossible are just cool guys in suits and you know beautiful women in nice dresses and this is this is the same kind of a deal so they introduce a lot of cool hitmen they don't have any in their lives they're just like i'm the cool hitman guy in, in various different ways and there's like a strain of humor running through the whole thing and a lot of like sort of comedy that comes out of uh john wick's sort of dry uh, remarks on things and the way he says yeah <laughs> and just the presence of keanu reeves right and the presence of keanu reeves he's a he's just a very you know charismatic and charming person someone whose reputation used to be as, as a total wooden plank and like blank slate and i think everyone loves him now and now everyone loves him everyone thinks he's like the hottest dude ever and he's super cool you know and i'm i'm, I'm pretty much on board with that i, I think, think like the hair i think that also makes the long hair cool. you don't really get action heroes with long hair Mm. they're too they've always got the buzz cuts that you hit in the gym he just seems like a dude hanging out who's he's not even that people. he's not even that built as well i think yeah. that's something i quite enjoy about him he's just a dude he's just a dude <laughs> <laughs> he's just a, he just seems nice just, yeah he seems like a nice guy i think I, I think that that is a strong part of the appeal of the john wick franchise is that even though he spends all of his time brutally murdering people you just feel like he just seems nice yeah i think of all of if the hand killed his dog he'd just be sitting on the couch yeah the cold bud and the dog all of that watching a movie that like um endless cliche of like the one last job thing you know it's so it's sold well in john wick because you really can imagine him retiring <laughs> like and just hanging out and you know yeah, just chatting can't. with people and just having us but he just can't it's just bastard. always getting uh, drawn back into it one thing that i did not care for about this movie is it has a highly sequel baiting conclusion Ugh. which i always feel is a bit cheap because it feels like i've just watched half a film you know just make one film at a time and make the your one film work just feels like you couldn't think of a satisfying conclusion to your story you know so you just wrote a two-hour half a film so i didn't care for that but in general the it's it's kind of more of the same i would say like 
on a level of like uh, stunts and variety of action sequences it's probably better than uh, john wick 2 which i think got a little bit repetitive by the end and this one is still the same kind of stuff you know yeah. so i cannot guarantee that you will not get bored of it because it's a lot of the same kinds of stuff but there's a lot of wit in it a lot of like fun little touches and uh yeah i just you know it, it is it, it does what it says on the tin it's another ron seal edition in the john wick franchise that, that essentially delivers what it promises great where uh, do you think uh they can take it next what animal is he going to befriend or ride or avenge i mean i'd be up for john wick goes to the zoo <laughs> Do you think there should be a Stuart in a zoo? We're just meeting all the <coughs> animals, befriending them. Well, there's a bit, them. there's a bit in John Wick Three where he goes into the stables and he he kills people multiple times by patting the backs of horses and then kicking the guy in the, in the head and Incredible. then then they die. <laughs> that happens like three times. Awesome. Um, uh, so I think John Wick goes to the zoo and he's like, uh, you know, squeezes the gorilla's thigh in just the correct way and it tears the dude's head off and stuff. I think that would be that would be pretty entertaining, you John know. Wick 4. He unleashes the like uh I don't know, the sloths. <laughs> the sloths. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why I thought of that utterly undeadly animal. But John Wick finds a way to kill people with them. No, the start of the movie he lets the sloths loose. <laughs> <laughs> and he uses a bunch of different animals and like two hours later The sloths, the sloths catch up. up. Pay off as check off sloths. <laughs> <laughs> That'd be sick. That would be sick. I guess they have to, given the way that this movie ends, they basically have, they must have known they'd be funding for like, one more John Wick film. Oh, I have one more comment on this. So, like, I don't know if it's just acting, because this is a film, because the film takes uh, takes up directly after the end of the previous film, and that film also took up pretty much directly after the end of the first film. They're in the world of John Wick. He's now been murdering people at an extreme high rate. Like the density of murders is just ludicrous at this point. Like I don't I think the whole franchise has taken place over like two weeks or something. Right. And he's just killed insane numbers of people. So it's twenty fourteen for, for Keanu. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Obama's still president. <laughs> Brexit hasn't happened. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. <laughs> he's living in the before times. Right. A utopia. Where all ha- all people had to worry about is the fact that like half the population of New York is hitmen. Yeah. But uh but he just seems kind of stiff to me. I mean, he's still a convincing action hero, but he's got like, he's just kind of a stiff on-screen presence. And I don't know if he's just getting old and a bit tight in the joints or whether he was just <laughs> acting that way because he's so tired from all the murders by this point. But, um, okay. you know, I don't know if, I don't, I don't know if anyone else felt that way, but I thought he was a little, a little stiff. A little stiff. A little bit stiff. I okay. Thought. Yeah. My favorite film stars Bridget Bardot. She's the queen, but she wants to be in radio. So she starts a podcast with her friends and the terrorists try to stop her, but she beats them in the end. All right, friends, that is the end of this week's episode of Film Chat. Next. Join us next week. What are we going to be talking about? Do I we have any idea? We're talking about the indie film Thunder Road and the art house film Sunset. Cool. Laszlo Nems or Nims. I don't know how to pronounce his name. The guy, the son of Saul. All right. I don't know what I'm going to. Don't know what I'm going to be talking about. I I'll watch some Godzilla, other child's King film. I go see Godzilla, King of the Monsters, and I'll deliver a kind of uh, like slightly checked out review. But I'm just like, yeah, I don't know. They're big, aren't they? So I look forward to that. Cool. All right. Bye, guys. Bye. You don't need no gun control. You know what you need? We need some bullet control. We need to make, we need to control the bullets, that's right. I think all bullets should cost $5,000. $5,000 for a bullet. You know why? Because if a bullet costs $5,000, there'll be no more innocent bystanders. Yeah. Yeah.
there, he must have been some. See, they put $50,000 worth of bullets in his hand. And people are faithful before they kill somebody if a bullet cost $5,000. Man, I would blow your fucking head off if I could afford it. I'm gonna give me another job. I'm gonna start saving some money. And you a dead man. You better hope I can't get no bullets on layaway. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.